And that's like straight out of The Handmaid's Tale. That's, that's totally wildly unacceptable. You may not like our truth as, as women, but you don't get to say we don't get to say it. Hello and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. My guest on this episode of the Nashville Sounding Board is Dr. Beth Ann McLaughlin, a neuroscientist in the Vanderbilt University Medical Center and a faculty member in the School of Medicine. Dr. McLaughlin is the founder of the hashtag MeTooSTEM nonprofit group and was awarded the MIT Disobedience Award for her advocacy for victims of sexual harassment and misconduct. We are recording this interview on February 28th, the same day that her employment at Vanderbilt is set to expire following a I guess, tortured tenure process. So, Dr. McLaughlin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, nice to have a Vandy grad uh, in the house as well. That's right. Well, before we dive into your activism and your tenure battle, can you talk a bit about your personal background and education? Oh, sure. So, um, I was born in Boston, and my family moved pretty quickly to St. Louis because my Father was sort of the first of his generation to get into graduate school, um, and he died suddenly when I was quite young, um, and we moved back to uh, New England, into New Hampshire. Um, I went to Skidmore College, um, which just upended Colorado College as the number one pot smoking school in the country. <laughs> Go thoroughbreds, um, and uh, did my work at uh, graduate work at University of Pennsylvania um, and a fellowship in University of Pittsburgh before I came to Vandy 16 years ago. Oh, wow. And so what drew you to the field of neuroscience and what was your path like to becoming a neuroscientist? Yeah, so neuroscience is fascinating. It's um, just where so much um, amazing science and technology and health issues are are crushing together in these ways that I don't see in other disciplines. And having family that had, had really struggled with mental health issues, um, it, it was clear to me that we weren't doing nearly enough in being able to tell people what kinds of drugs might work for them if um, they had depression, getting some drugs to folks that had schizophrenia that weren't so life-altering that they, you know, could could decrease their symptoms but not live a normal life. So there was just a huge need in there. Um, And neurons are just beautiful and functional, and it's a great opportunity for folks who are interested in science to interact with clinicians who are treating patients with Parkinson's disease and then uh, talk to other folks on campus in physics and chemistry. So it's really very intersectional and collaborative, and I love that about it. And you mentioned your um, your graduate work at UPenn, and your postdoc advisor, as I read up about you, um, was a man and one of the good ones, it, it seems, within the profession. So what was that experience like, having a male mentor, and how did that contrast with a lot of treatment that other women might receive? Um, so when I was in graduate school, I actually had two really strong female mentors, and then my fellowship was with a man, um, Dr. Ilias Eisenman, 
at University of Pittsburgh. And um, it was nice in the sense that it was a very protected environment. He was he was very concerned about his trainees doing well. I, I never really had to deal with any issues of feeling unsafe in, in the lab. And that is untrue for the majority of women in science. We know from a National Academy of Science report that came out this summer that um, women who are in science, technology, engineering, and medicine are the most sexually harassed profession outside of the military. Um, the vast majority of women, over 60%, are sexually harassed, grabbed, groped, assaulted, raped um, by their colleagues. Um, and, and so I feel like I sort of dodged a bullet during my fellowship. So I was going to ask this later, but I'll, I'll jump ahead now. In light of those statistics, do you think that sexual harassment is worse in STEM programs than in the private industry and other parts of, of academe? And if so, why might that be? Um, I think that there are some specific things about um, science, technology, engineering, and medicine, and that they, they often don't allow a lot of mobility. Um, you have not a huge selection of really top-tier programs in any one of those fields. Um, and, and we know from the recent walkout at Google that, that those folks who are involved in technology, you know, that should be a aspirational job. That should be um, someplace where they are, they are doing all the right things and working hard to pilot new programs where everyone is able to focus intently on the things that they're excited about at work. And that's, that's clearly not the case at Google. Um, and, and so if you ask someone, well, why don't you just leave? Well, because there aren't a lot of Googles. And I think that's true in academia as well. And there aren't a lot of top-tier programs that you can have mobility in. And that really locks you into environments that you're trying to get work done, but um, you're fearing for your safety and you're feeling, fearing for the safety of your students. And that's not okay. Jumping back to your professional work, what is your research specialty within neuroscience and what's your record of obtaining grant funding? Um, so I've been very fortunate in, in getting grant funding. Um, the majority of my funding comes from the National Institutes of Health um, and their mission of improving the lives of um, folks around the world and studying disease. Um, my, I've also received funding from uh, the DOD, from uh, American Heart Association. Um, I am the director of a clinical neuroscience pro uh, scholars program that gets funded through the Dan Marino Foundation. I brought in a $1.2 million um, donation from the Marinos to help with an autism program that uh, was part of the Kennedy Center. My last uh, grant from a program called IARPA, which was a year-long grant with some amazing researchers at Vanderbilt. That was a, we had a million dollars for a year to study how uh, pesticides were affecting uh, neurons that are important for later development of Alzheimer's disease. So these are sort of big grant 
projects that you need a lot of hands on deck um, and a lot of bright minds. And so what has been the nature of your own experience with harassment throughout your life and uh, professional career? And, and when did you first become aware of the scale of the problem generally and also specifically within STEM? Um, my own experience with harassment was that I had seen it. I had experienced gender bias and getting passed over for things where less qualified individuals were given opportunities that that I wasn't. And those things just sort of seed in the back of your head. But, you know, I, I very much had a um, let me put my blinders on and get my work done approach. Um, I had navigated the relationships in ways that I had some pretty firm boundaries and um, that that made me feel safe. And it wasn't until I had this experience at Vanderbilt where um, a faculty member who was being sued by a student for um, a lot of inappropriate behaviors, including um, having his male colleagues go and stay in her hotel room at conferences because uh, they were drunk, um, making a lot, making her wildly uncomfortable. She had gotten sober and telling her that, you know, she was way more fun when she was drinking. A lot of, you know, this is, you know, this guy is, is, no one I know has said to me, like, no, he he didn't harass women. Like, it, But what you do here is, well, he didn't mean it. Um, he didn't mean it. And, and for too many women, when, they, when a guy says to you, oh, he's harmless or he didn't mean anything, it, what we hear is he's not going to physically assault you. And, and that's not the same as being harmless. Um, that's not the same as my trainees looking and saying, well, am I supposed to be a giggle puff and sit on some guy's lap in order to get their attention in science? Like, that's not what I want. That's not who I am. And um, and then all of these things were, you know, just things I had seen. And again, I had opinions, but I wasn't vocal about them. And in retrospect, I'm really ashamed of that. But we were at a dinner at his house and he had was talking about this case that was against him and um he was wearing a gun a holstered gun and talking about how he was going to destroy this student how he had seen her on social media um and she was living her life and happy and that was totally unacceptable to him that um, he, his, his life had been ruined because of the publicity around this, this giant lawsuit. And I got in a really big fight with him and said, you know, you're not gonna do anything to her. You know, you have a family, you have to be the first person who's out there saying, yes, I did these things. And I now see how how wrong that is. I now see how that, that that demeans women. I now see how it makes everyone unsafe. And you know, we went back and forth for a good 20 minutes and he was not budging. He was just so furious. 
And, you know, ultimately, I reported him. And, you know, this sort of litany of tragedies happened of then being retaliated against where he starts to tell my colleagues I shouldn't be teaching in their classes, that I shouldn't be getting the honors that I'm getting from different societies, that I shouldn't have these professional opportunities. And, you know, I'm just a witness in a Title IX case. Like, I should just be able to say, yes, he threatened to retaliate against a student. That's illegal. And I saw it, and let me sign my, you know, statement. Done and done. But it was three years of him harassing me on social media, taking over social media accounts that had been um, safe places for women to talk in the era of sort of pre-Me Too. And, you know, it it was personally and professionally and emotionally devastating. Um... But there was no way I was going to – it became increasingly clear he was absolutely going to do this to this student if it wasn't for the fact that he was super intent on doing it to me. So that's a no-brainer, right? You stand in front of the student and take it. So that was the moment that you knew you had to take your blinders off and become an activist essentially. Well, that was a moment that I knew I had to take my blinders off for sure. And then I had to involve myself in the internal process And in involving myself in that, I saw what too many students on on campuses everywhere see, which is a Title IX process that does not have their best interest at heart, that does not seek to restore them. I have have talked to hundreds of victims um, who have been grabbed and groped and raped on campus, and not a single one of them says Title IX was at all healing? Was it all just the vast majority of these students who are hurt on campus leave campus and and never get a chance to be welcomed back into the community to help heal that hurt? Um, and, and that I blame Title IX for. The, yeah. So I've seen a lot of your kind of tweets about Title IX and, and how it relates to investigations of sexual misconduct. What do you think are the specific shortcomings of the process? Um, well, for the biggest shortcoming of the process is that those are lawyers hired by the university for the university. If, God forbid, you have to sue the university because they didn't protect your safety, the Title IX office will sit on the university's side as, as the defendant's. Those are lawyers that are not your lawyers. They are they are not for the victim's help. They're not for the victim's healing. Their sole purpose is to move things along, oftentimes as slowly as they possibly can, in order to move out of windows where the victim has other courses of action legally. And that's wildly unacceptable. They communicate poorly. They report results to your administrators. And yeah, I mean, my Title IX office, even though I was a witness, they investigated me. And that was after Dr. Galley. Galley is the man who you had that dinner with. 
and he claimed that the next day you sent him an email saying, oh, great dinner, had a great time or something, and that he asked them to investigate you. He says, I didn't know that she was a witness. <laughs> Seems a little hard to believe that. Yeah, but... so I, I said dinner is fantastic. Um, the dinner was like, say what you want. The man's a good cook. And the next day he asked my significant other to come onto campus and he had assembled a folder of things that he thought were about him or um, uh, that made me look bad in social media sphere, whether it was the reference managing software that my lab used, um, talking about uh, young blood uh, or, um, and by the way, don't swap your blood for the individual's young people and think that it cures Alzheimer's. You should definitely not do that, California. Please stop. Um, <laughs> That's like the blood boys or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. So, it, 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 yeah, we were interested in it, but um, don't do that. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so he got this file together. And um, my significant other at the time was like, dude, no one is talking about you. Like, just, you know, try to try to be a better human. Um, but when the Title IX investigators came, one, they wouldn't record anything I was saying. And this is what they do. Like, they, you know, I can record this with my phone, right? But this gives them an opportunity to say anything they want and, and skew it how they want it represented. And... You know, we're better than that. You should use my actual words, and you should use them in the context which I, I give them to you. Um, and the Title IX investigator, the second time he showed up in my office for um, clarification, um, he brought this folder, and he's like, did you say this? Did you say that? Did you?" And, and these are accounts that women are using mostly to sort of get professional advice and networking. And, and so oftentimes we do it with a bunch of people running those accounts and, and These Facebook things. accounts, Twitter accounts? Twitter accounts, Twitter. predominantly, you know, um, some folks use MySpace, some folks go on Reddit threads. But we do it anonymously because um, it's these are not things that we feel comfortable saying, like, I don't feel like my department is supporting me because they just promoted this guy who came in when I did, and we had the same grants. Like, you should be able to go to a community and say that. But if you say it in your real voice, there's consequences. Um, and so to take away our ability to have these professional conversations about things that are frustrating us and things that are are lived experiences for too many of us, um, where we're not dragging anyone, we're not belittling anyone, we're just... Um, talking about about life and science, and um, to take away our, our real-life ability to do that, and then to take away these accounts, which is what something Galley is doing right this moment on Twitter, is is doxing women on, on Twitter, um, saying who he thinks are contributing to, to other anonymous accounts. Um, 
is just deplorable. You take away your real life voice, you take away your community voice, you are giving a really strong statement that silence, I want you to be silent. And and that's like straight out of The Handmaid's Tale. That's That's totally wildly unacceptable. You may not like our truth as as women, but you don't get to say we don't get to say it. That's that's unacceptable. Going back to your kind of the the decision point of sort of stepping out there, becoming an activist. What was the nature of your activism or political involvement, if any, prior to the Me Too STEM work? Um, I would say I was. Uh, um pretty liberal in my politics. Um, and, you know, uh, it was, it was a series of, um, we had, uh, a new grabbing, um, uh, president, don't know what I can say on a podcast, <laughs> Anything um, you want. a new pussy grabbing president. Um, we had, um, you know, uh, rolling back of of protections for women and closing of family planning resources. We're taking kids away from their families. You know, it just was sort of this this period in my head and for so many people, particularly women in the United States, where um, it's um, either we do something or something is done to us. And um, about a year ago, there was a story that came out in Science um, that talked about how the society, the National Academy of Sciences, which is like the best thing you can get in the United States to be a member of the National Academy of Sciences, that one of their members who was in charge of the journal had a decades-long history of grabbing and groping and trying to kiss and corner and uh, harass women, you know, women who would come for job interviews as faculty. This was his his hazing, this sort of old boys club. And they put him in charge of the journal. And this is the, these are the people that are supposed to be the best of the best. These are the people that are supposed to um, uh, be the standard bearers, and they're studying this problem. They're about to release this giant report about the lived experience for for women in in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And um, they're in no position to do that, right? I mean, they're not the best of the best. They have six members who have been found guilty of Title IX violations, or they quit because the case was so bad against them um, and the number of witnesses that came forward, they were just like, uh, nope. And and they still keep these men in. You know, these are people, men who have had their names stripped off their own uh, buildings that, that they were famous for. You know, this is, and what they do in the National Academy of the Arts when they have these Bill Cosbys, when they have these Roman Polanskis is they kick them out. National Academy of Sciences doesn't do that. And that's abhorrent. That's embarrassing to me as a mentor. It's embarrassing to me as a scientist. Um, there is literally nothing that they have ever done that some woman couldn't have figured out um, 
if they hadn't have been forced out of science. They are not special snowflakes. <laughs> so did that report uh, spur the idea of creating the hashtag MeTooSTEM? Is that where it came from? And, and what, what's the response to that been both nationally and here locally at, at Vanderbilt? Um, good question. Uh, yeah, so that's sort of where that that's where that hashtag sort of came to be, and a, it was resonating with a lot of people. Um, and the first thing that I did was call out the president of the National Academy of Sciences because this is a this is the first woman they've had as a president, Marsha McNutt. Um, this is a, a woman who, when she was the editor of a very prestigious journal called Science, had written a, a scathing editorial saying science societies have to take the lead in getting rid of harass holes. And then she gets to be in charge of the best science society and doesn't do anything. And it, it makes me bananas because she goes around giving talks about how bad sexual harassment is. She gives them at college commencements. She gives them at national meetings. And at no point does she say, I need to clean up my own house. So I helped her with that. I thought she, like, I, I honestly, okay, uh, granted, I'm somewhat snarky, but, like, I, I thought she just needed some public pressure to right. then affect this change. And so I started a petition that had thousands of folks sign on and say, this is totally unacceptable. What are you doing? Um, and, uh, I, you know, I was saying, like, I'm sure she's grateful and will send me an edible arrangement and, and thank me for bringing this to the forefront in her conversations with members. Um, I, I did not ever get an edible arrangement from her. It's not too late, I guess. It's never too late for like those chocolate dipped grapes. Have you had those? <laughs> They're delicious. <laughs> those are very good. So the, the term harass holes, it, it's a pretty great one. Was that your creation? As far as I know. Well, me and gin, you know, make do a little gin, a little tonic, a little lime. I get very creative. Very creative. Well, it's 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 a great term. Uh, so today, uh, National Institutes of Health Director Dr. Francis Collins released a statement apologizing to victims of sexual harassment and highlighting what NIH is doing to change the culture of sexual harassment in science. And Director Collins tweeted a special thank you to you and said, quote, leadership with the hashtag MeTooSTEM movement has given a voice to victims of harassment. Her activism has been valuable in shaping NIH's discussion of how to strengthen our, e our efforts. So have you ever gotten that kind of support and acknowledgement from administrators at Vanderbilt? The sound you hear is crickets. <laughs> no. That, that, says, that says something, I think. Your position at Vanderbilt involves both research and teaching, right? Uh, it does. It does. And do you think that your Me Too STEM work has interfered at, at all with your research and grant ability? Um, I do not think my Me Too STEM work did. I think that um, when you're forced to go through three Title IX hearings, when you're forced to be subject to potential discipline, um, and when you're, and when 
the university says, okay, um, we're going to let faculty figure out what's happening and Title IX figure out what's happening. And then they hire lawyers when they don't like what the faculty is finding, when they, when they say, you know what? There are people that lied about Beth Ann, um, and here are their names, and they diminished her career, and they committed retaliation, which is illegal. Um, and then the university sees this coming, sees the faculty like realizing what's happening in this in in the context of faculty senate, and so they hire outside lawyers, and they spend tens of thousands of dollars to spin their own narrative. And then when I go to tenure appeals and, and those guys see the truth of what it is that Vanderbilt has, has allowed to happen in the corrupt Title IX process, they hire their own lawyers and say, no, 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 this is what it is. Well, people who you hire, particularly lawyers, are going to find on your side. I mean, I don't have tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to hire a lawyer that that will say my narrative. Um, and uh, this throwing lawyers at faculty to investigate them, they went through all my emails. They sent, gave me a stack of emails with um, information about health things, about my children, about my family, about my finances. That is not tenure. That is not what we do to people in tenure. We don't hire outside law firms because the dean thinks you're a troublemaker. That's wildly unacceptable. Um, and, and you know, it just, it's utterly baffling to me that, that they would invest the money in that um, yeah, it's it's really unconscionable, and I hope that when it comes to the attention of the chancellor, that they really, really make some big changes and that have a lasting impact on the decision makers in Title IX, the decision makers in the dean of faculty's office. And I really, really, really want the dean of faculty's parking spot because he should take a long walk from the furthest parking lot on campus and think about those choices every day. How do you think your tenure case relates to your activism? And so the, the timeline, as I understand it, is that you were initially recommended and approved for tenure, but then that decision was reversed after Vanderbilt Med School CEO Jeffrey Balzer asked for the committee to review the decision. And this was after you were cleared in that investigation phase following you being a witness. And this is all very very complicated, but can you talk about your tenure process and the nature of your particular grievance? So all of that is true. What you put in your tenure package, your department approves you. My department um, approved me. The tenure and promotions committee at the next level approves you um, or not, and I was approved by them. Um, and then they go to an executive committee, um, and I got the majority of the votes and in that as well and then the they sat on it and they sat on my tenure I mean all told I've been an assistant professor for 16 years this is a process that should take seven years um and when they 
pulled out these, they gave them a, one of the lawyer's reports. Um, and I'm still not entirely sure what else they gave them, but um, the dean asked them to meet in person. And all of a sudden, it's a unanimous no. I'm still the same scientist. I'm still I'm actually, you know, getting more money. I'm actually publishing more papers. Um, and then they're all, they all just say no. And you don't give them a report filed by lawyers going through their email and, and pretend at all that that's, um, you know, unbiased. That's not unbiased. You just paid them a lot of money and told them what to find and they found what you wanted to, you know. And, and you know, I would love, yeah, it's it's bananas. So there's an appeal that goes to the faculty senate and frankly, the faculty senate is um, really stuck, right? Like they've never seen these sort of violations of of who faculty should be and their autonomy and their voice, and like they've never seen a faculty member run down like this. And the problem, and so that should be helpful, right? That should be shocking, and and but the problem is they also don't have rules that they can say, well. You're not supposed to hire lawyers and like do some private investigation. Um, so they've never heard of that. So they're a little stuck, right? Like what rules are violated? Well, we didn't anticipate the dean going after you like this. Um, so it's really up to the chancellor at this point. I was just about to ask that kind of what's the current status? I know it seems to be in the hands of Vanderbilt Chancellor Zeppos. How much local support? For you, is there at the med school, and and do you think after today you'll still have a job? I mean, how, the the NIH grant ends today, right? So the so there's a little bit of murky space in there, right? So my NIH grant um, uh, will end. Um, I've gotten different letters that say the end of February, the end of March. Um, regardless, like. It's a very, very tenuous situation, and I, I think that having this national recognition of uh, MIT Media Labs and Society for Neuroscience, and you know, I've had Nobel laureates speak out not just about this shouldn't happen to her, but also it shouldn't happen to anyone, and something that should have taken. 30 minutes one afternoon to sign as a witness has, you know, the amount of time that I had to take out of my job to do the process is not recoverable. I mean, I was on a trajectory for absolutely getting tenure and, and absolutely being a, a leader in my field. And I've stayed competitive but it's not the same of who I was supposed to be, and that's not okay. And and right now, the NIH, which released that statement and said, you know, thank you for your work, they don't have a real way to thank people for participating in this process. They don't have an emergency fund that says, oh my gosh, you got completely dragged through the mud. Let us help you restore your career. And that's what I'm working with the director of NIH on now. So perhaps that emergency fund is the answer to this question, but 
it's it seems like your career was more or less put on hold. I saw you tweet that you feel like you've lost four and a half years of your career and that there's really no path back. What steps do you think can be taken institutionally to lower the price of defiance? Yeah, so when I think of institutions, I tend to think about universities, and we've had Title IX protections um, for 47 years, and the universities haven't done right by victims. We're not going to do 48 more years like that. Like, time's up on that for sure. Um, NIH saying blindly, we have $37 billion to spend every year on science, and we just turn it over to universities where victims are being hurt and and we're not giving them a system of justice or a voice or even an opportunity to return, that's over. That's just done. What they typically do is um, they have a um, – uh, so one example is – the chairman of the Department of Pharmacology at Vanderbilt, David Sweat, um, he's been accused of drugging and raping a student. What they did um, is Vanderbilt had him on campus for 11 months um, while they knew that investigation was going on. And someone publicly called out the director of NIH and said, when he was praising this man, and said, that's not okay. You know, he's, I think she said he's a rapist or he's been accused of rape. And then all of a sudden, the next day, Vanderbilt suspends him. It, it shouldn't be, and, and this is not just a Vanderbilt thing. We see this at universities all over the place. You shouldn't have to have someone go on a public screed and say, for a university to say, holy cow, that's a really serious allegation. You're off campus. We want victims to come forward and feel safe, and we're going to put you on administrative leave the same way we do with cops and judges and whatever. Um, so saying, what are institutions doing? Are they doing the right thing? Well, you know, at the sake of, at the sake of their victims, when they're dragged, yeah, they'll do the right thing. And so in the case of David Sweat, his money – is then shuffled off to a colleague. I mean, I don't know which colleague, but these are folks that that hired him. These are folks that collaborate with him. This is not, you know, you can imagine what it's like to be, you're not in the fire anymore, but you're still, you know, in the pan and it's not looking much better. And there's still that gaslighting that everything's okay, everything's okay. And this isn't something for the sweat case in in. Uh, for example, but it certainly is something that we see all over the place that that there are these clusters of people who know about bad behavior and one of the people goes down, but it's still a systemic problem. Um, and so they, they shouldn't be able to transfer a grant. They shouldn't have their next buddy get the grant. That's not okay. Um, that money should get yanked. That you know, when the person's been found guilty. And if the person is not found guilty, their career should be in restored as well. But we don't pass it along into, oh, well, you know, it's still a horrible situation, but it's slightly less horrible. And if they lose the money, I believe that the money should go to a restorative justice account to help fund the victims and, and their needs. So I have to ask this, Anita Hill, the Anita Hill, now a professor at Brandeis, 
wrote you a letter of support in which she called you a hero and wrote, quote, the impact on you and your career are not to be underestimated. Uh, so that's kind of prophetic. I have to ask, how did that feel? It was amazing. Um, she's, it, you know, it doesn't get any better than Anita Hill. I remember being a little kid and watching her and I'm like, I mean, I didn't know any better, but I believed her, right? Like, there were some specific and super creepy things. And and I remember seeing people supporting her. And that was super empowering to see those, those voices because that's not something that was part of our lived experience before. Um, I, I really – I maybe should have read that email better because – I kept thinking Vanderbilt was going to do the right thing. But, yeah, she was probably on to something this fall um, that uh, I hope to prove her wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah, I really do hope to prove her wrong because I know she wants me to prove her wrong as well. Um, but I've been invited to speak at Brandeis. Um, so I'm trying to work out the details of that. Um She's just she's just a superhero, um, and and she's very pragmatic. So, how can listeners perhaps help prove her wrong? And I know there's a petition that's gotten a lot of traction. Um, are there other ways to to support you? Yeah, I think that you know one of the ways to support me is to to support understanding Title Nine that. I think that if parents knew that these conversations that they're having with their kids when they send them off to college, you you hear a lot of these conversations of, hey, be careful at a fraternity party or be careful on your first couple weeks on campus and and who those predators are supposed to look like. Um, It would have never crossed my mind that there are faculty on campus who've been guilty of grabbing and groping and raping and harassing and retaliating against women. And the university knows it. They put them through the only system of justice. They were found guilty. And they're still teaching. In Rochester, Florian Yeager, who was at a faculty party and complaining about how he didn't like how his graduate student's vagina tasted, he's still teaching. What? Um you know, you know, he had he had a decade of sleeping with students, harassing students, making lewd and vulgar comments. He's still teaching. Six faculty members left because they wouldn't fire him. A student went on a six day hunger strike at Rochester and the the chancellor there resigned. But they hired outside lawyers. And the outside lawyers say, he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. That, that's, not, that's not okay. So really being a, a more informed customer when you're sending your kids off to college, Julie Labarkin has a database of over 700 faculty and staff who've been found guilty of sexual misconduct. Look at it. Look at it. Advocate for U.S. News and World Reports when they're doing their rankings of colleges to have a metric on there. How many cases of sexual misconduct do you have on your campus? If you're talking about what the environment is like, I honestly don't care if you have like 700 or 70 trees. I want to know if you have 700 or 70 cases of sexual assault 
that's what a parent wants to know. That reminds me of maybe my sophomore or junior year at, at Vanderbilt. Student paper, front page, Vanderbilt had, had uh, released the numbers. During the previous year, there were zero sexual assaults on campus. Right. And that was pre-Me Too. It was pre-kind of society better understanding the scope of the problem. But it was laughable. I mean, z- right. zero. Yeah. No, so that's that's what they do. And, and they've been sanctioned so many times for that, you know. And this is really an opportunity for Vanderbilt to do better. And I can make it better, but I'm not going to make it better with a partner that's not even going to recognize that they have a problem. I would love to see individuals who go into Title IX hearings and we interact with them and say, all right, how are you feeling? What do you need? Um, What are your expectations of this process? And that we check in with them and we say, okay, it's been a week since you reported. What are you needing? How are you feeling? What is your view of this process? And then it's a month and then it's three months. And that we actually hold Title IX accountable. And we say, this person quit the Title IX process because you dragged it out for so long that you look suspiciously like someone who's trying to move to where they can no longer have any other legal recourse in terms of suing the university. And that's that's not okay. And we catch these issues that are not Vanderbilt issues. Every campus around the country is doing this. Dartmouth just had a $70 million lawsuit. Um, Columbia just had to kick out a member of the National Academy of Sciences because he was hitting on a graduate student. And when she said, no, you're super creepy and like 900 years old, uh, he kicked her out of the program. And and that guy was found guilty of serially grooming young women. They still let him be on Columbia campus housing. They still let him walk around campus. I mean, these things that people do, they should be in prison for some of the time. And And it's such white privilege that they get to just act as business as usual in their subsidized housing. No, you're a bum. Get out. So my my final question for you, and and feel free to add whatever you want. What are your plans for the future of Me Me Too STEM? Um, My plans are to, so we have a GoFundMe, um, and uh, we are working hard to build our our war chest for victims of sexual harassment and advocating for them. Um, the way that we're we're implementing that is through um, being visible at scientific society meetings. That um, they invest in bringing us to the site. We provide a safe room for conversations. That you know there are too many science meetings you go to where. You know, you you can't work quietly and not be sexually harassed because it's so pervasive. We provide that safe room. We allow for conversations. Um, we talk about resources that they can use outside of local um, Title IX offices, and that we want societies to invest in that. And and we're we've invested some of that money in doing that, but we really need them to reciprocate. Um, we are also using some of that money to help people who can't afford the filing fees that go along with 
shedding light on this, filing fees for Freedom of Information Acts, filing fees that are required for uh, a lot of legal processes. Um, and uh, the other thing that we're doing is working with lawyers to figure out if we can use whistleblower laws to go after the money that universities are putting into um, known harass holes and then attesting that that is a good environment for students to be in. That's that's disingenuous at best and something that the um, Government Accountability Office can can take a good amount of money back and then uh, that would feed a whistleblower fund through Me Too STEM. So we're working with uh, some lawyers to figure out how to how to move that system because I'm a firm believer that the only thing that's going to change this is the laws and money and a little outrage. Well, thanks so much for, for sharing that outrage with me today. Thanks for taking the time. And as a Vanderbilt alum, certainly hope Vanderbilt and Chancellor Zeppos do right by you and you can Stay a part of the community here. Yeah, it's a great town. The undergrads are so amazing. I'm so excited to have this conversation openly and in a way that we can move forward. So thank you. I really appreciate you having me. Thanks again. Views that I express on this podcast and on my social media accounts are mine alone and do not reflect the views of the Metropolitan Government of Nashville and Davidson County.